The sermon series that we're in right now is called Weeping in the Heart of God, Weeping in the Heart of God. Some time ago, I looked at scripture and I thought, man, I'd love to go to each of those passages where tears are highlighted, because I think that tears are oftentimes holy moments. They're moments where somehow everything cuts through our persona, everything cuts through our tough exterior and makes it all the way down to the real us. And so I think there's something special when tears occur, especially in scripture. Two weeks ago, we looked at the story of Hagar as she wept in the wilderness and as God came to rescue her and Ishmael. Last week, we looked at Hannah. We looked at her tears and her weeping at the temple, and we saw again that God also came and answered her prayers. Today, we're going to be looking at a psalm that invites us also to pay attention to our tears. But before we begin, let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, some of us are people who are well acquainted with tears. Some of us are people who are not acquainted with tears. We've, um, we've kept those tears at bay for a long time. But Father, clearly, part of what your word does is your word invites us to bring our tears to you. And so, Father, whether we do that this morning or we do it in personal worship, Father, I pray that we would do just that. Father, I pray that we would follow our tears down to their source. And then, Father, whatever that source is, Father, those deep desires that have been kept at bay, those deep desires that have been denied, Father, I pray that we would take those to you as our good Father. I pray that we would take those deep desires and that sadness to your Son, Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. One of the most quotable lines, I think, in movie history is the phrase, there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball. I don't know if you guys remember um, the movie A League of Their Own, but Tom Hanks is the coach of a women's baseball team, and at one point in time during the movie, one of the players begins crying, and he is the coach or the manager of the team, and he comes rushing out of the dugout, and he goes, there's no crying in baseball? And of course, this was probably set back in the 40s or something like that. Surely, that's one of the more uh, memorable scenes from movie history, it is for me anyway. But part of what that line does is it acknowledges that there are certain rules for crying in every culture, right? So different cultures have different rules for tears. Interestingly, in 2015, GQ published an article titled, It's Okay to Cry, But There Are Rules. And of course, GQ is, an, is a magazine that's written to men. And so this article was written actually by a female to men. It's okay to cry, but there are rules. She's helping us out. The article served as an analysis on when men should uh, or should not be allowed to cry according to society. Here's what she says. Male crying is not news. It's been happening for as long as men have had eyeballs, but... It was almost always done behind at least three closed doors. Here are some of the author's public sort of uh, guidance for public tears. She says this, It's okay to cry if you're in extreme pain, like, say, a piano were dropped from a 50-story building on your foot. That said, there are limits to this rule. My dad got stung by a bee and started bleeding like a newborn goat. And in that moment, I did think, Dad, stop being such a baby. In fact, I said it out loud. If you're going to cry from pain, it has to at least be an eight on the pain scale. It's okay to cry at certain works of art or film. For instance, if you don't get misty-eyed at Toy Story 3, you are a monster. It's almost weird if you don't sob the first time you hold your newborn baby. No shame in that, bro, she says. She goes on, it's definitely weird if you sob during a sports event, although you can cry if you're actually one of the athletes out there on the field. But even then, you should cry only if you win. And if you're just a fan, the rule here is much simpler. Never, ever cry. She goes on to say, never, ever cry at work. Exceptions are made for actors. 
and never ever cry during an argument. The author goes on to say, sorry guys, but crying during an argument is kind of our thing. Again, female author. Frankly, I'm not sure what the crying rules are for Western men in 2021. I don't, I don't know what those rules are anymore. What I am sure of, however, is that God invites us to bring our tears to him in worship. That's something that's very clear that we see in the Psalms. The evidence of that that we're going to look at today is found in Psalm 42. Let's take a look at verses 1 through 11. The title of this psalm is, Why are you cast down, O my soul, to the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah? Verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, Where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and with songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Verse 5, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So what do we see here in verse 42? What should we take away from this psalm? Well, the first thing we see is we see the sadness of the psalmist. We see the sadness of the psalmist. Look at verses 1 through 3. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all the day long, where's your God? So several years ago, I went to see a counselor, and during the meeting, she asked me a number of diagnostic questions. I was doing great until she asked me the following question. She said this, what emotions do you experience on a regular basis? I was a little bit stumped, to be honest with you. I paused. And up until that point, I'd been able to rattle off pretty quick questions to her answers. That question, however, really made me stop and think for a moment. I offered the following response, and I said, well, I guess sometimes I feel happy, right? Check. And then I said, other times I guess I feel kind of sad, and sometimes I get angry. And then there was a little bit longer pause as I thought for, thought for about any other emotions I might experience. And then I asked her, I said, is hunger an emotion? Does, does that count? Anyway, that was it. That was my emotional range. Happy, sad, angry, and hungry, if that counts. She looked at me with something like pity in her eyes, and she handed me a piece of paper with probably 100 feeling words on it, and she suggested that I take a look, right? It's funny, um, some guys in the church have been through something called Battle for the Heart, and they give us in this, this training that we go through those same sort of feeling words, and we jokingly said that we needed to have those printed on a t-shirt upside down so that we're in conversation with people. If we get stuck, we can kind of pull it out and read sort of those emotion words. It helps out a little bit. 
many of us, especially those of us who would be classified as moderns, grew up with, frankly, a distrust of emotions. So some of you in the room feel sort of distrustful about your own emotions. Our parents and grandparents had endured World War II. They had witnessed the Holocaust. They had witnessed the Cold War. Some had even endured the tail end of the Depression. For many of them, the way to endure, to make it through such harsh times, was actually to sort of stuff or quarantine or quadrant off their emotions. I even remember as a kid having a book on my shelf called Emotions, Can You Trust Them? Emotions, Can You Trust Them? For many Western moderns, the logic was that emotions, particularly negative emotions, were actually a barrier to getting things done. Of course, with current generations, the exact opposite evaluation of emotion exists. We're taught that to be our true self, we have to live in accordance with and surrender to those emotions. Does that make sense? So for moderns, it was a distrust of emotions. For postmoderns, it's an embrace all your emotions. Both are oversimplifications, however, and neither is biblical. I would argue that our emotions serve like a dashboard on a vehicle. In the same way that the oil light on your dashboard flashes as an alert that either you have low oil or it's time to change the oil in your car, so depression might serve as a warning that you've been living in isolation and that you need to seek out a friend. Or that same depression might be a reminder that you need to take a Sabbath. Or that depression, that sadness might be a reminder that you need to take medicine in order to regulate the chemical state of your body. God created us with emotions. We're created to feel joy. We're created to feel anger. As we experience emotions, we would do well to pay attention to the dashboard of our lives. Those emotions are trying to draw our attention to something. In this case, the psalmist pays attention to his emotions. He's deeply sorrowful. He says in verse three, my tears have been my food day and night. His sadness is so great that he's having trouble sleeping. That phenomenon sounds all too familiar to some of us. Three times in this psalm, he declares that his soul is downcast. In verse 9, he says that he is in mourning. The psalmist is experiencing crushing sadness and sorrow. Many of you, many of us in this room this morning, many of you within the sound of my voice have felt this kind of persistent sadness and sorrow. Maybe you feel profound sadness at this very moment in your life. It feels like you're on the verge of tears all the time. Maybe it doesn't feel that way. Maybe you are on the verge of tears all the time. Like the psalmist, when you wake up in the middle of the night, you feel the overwhelming weight of your sorrow. Like the psalmist, your soul is downcast. Your soul is in turmoil. And oftentimes, you don't even know exactly why. You're stuck. You don't know what to do. Maybe Psalm 42 can give us some guidance. Let's look at the next point. The next point is the response of the psalmist. What does he do? Look at verses four through five. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go out with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O oh my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? How does the psalmist respond? He begins by pouring out his soul to God. Let me say that one more time. He begins by pouring out his soul to God. And he then interrogates himself, saying, why are you so downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? 
Many of you know and have heard me talk over the years about how I've listened and read quite a bit of popular psychology. I've listened to podcasts on psychology. I've watched my fair share of free YouTube lectures from different college and university psychology professors. And one of those psychologists that I've listened to some described in part how he begins his counseling sessions with people who are struggling with depression. Basically, he says this. He says that one of the first steps that he does is he just lets the people talk. He says that oftentimes people don't know what's going on within them, so part of his job is to help them get all their, uh, all their cards out on the table. That's what the psalmist is doing here. He's laying all of his cards on the table before God. He's pouring out his soul to God. This psalm is an invitation, but it's also a recommendation for you to do that as well. What we have to remember is the Psalms aren't here to help us get it right. The Psalms are here to help us get it out. And God invites us to pour out our soul and our sorrows to him. The next thing that we see is the psalmist is interrogating himself. He says, why are you so downcast? So it's important that once we get all those cards out on the table to God, it's important that we look at them and we see what might be causing our anxiety or our sorrow or our depression. When meeting with people who are struggling with depression, most or at least many psychologists will begin with a series of simple questions. One of the things they ask is, how is your diet? How are you eating? One of the things they'll ask is, what time do you go to bed? Or what time do you wake up? One of the questions they'll ask is, do you exercise? Often, one of those very simple factors is the culprit in depression. Of course, at other times, depression can be biochemical or it can be depression, that depression is actually an appropriate response to really difficult events in your life. I'm not sure if you guys remember Dr. Phil, but I once heard Dr. Phil interviewed, and he was asked about treating depression with drugs. He, again, used to have a uh, TV show. He's a clinical psychologist. And he answered when asked that question, he said sometimes that the right response is to treat uh, depression with drugs, but he also said something that was pretty shocking in its simplicity. He said sometimes we jump to the conclusion that if we're depressed, that something's actually wrong with us. And he said, actually, feeling depressed is often the completely appropriate response to life. In other words, it's not that something's wrong with you. It's actually something is right if you experience that sadness. If you lose your spouse, you should feel depressed. That's an appropriate human response. If you're struggling with cancer, then depression can be a logical response to that. What's important is to find out what is causing your sadness. In the case of Psalm 42, the author pours out his heart to God. He then interrogates himself, and before long, he identifies the source of his sorrow. In verse 9, we read this, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? And then in verse 10, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Verse 4 also gives us a clue. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. The psalmist's tears and mourning are because he feels far, far away from God. It feels as though God has forgotten him. It feels as though God has abandoned him. I would assume that many of you can identify with feeling very distant from God at various moments in your life. Where we once experienced joy and gladness at the presence of God, maybe now we experience nothing but deafening silence. 
where we once felt security and safety and intimacy with God, now we feel nothing but loneliness. Like the psalmist, we long to experience the presence of God again. This psalm, however, fortunately does not end in despair. Instead, this psalm ends in hope. Let's look now at the hope of the psalmist. We find this in verses 5 through 8. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and out of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So, so far, we've seen how the psalmist has paid attention to his emotion. He's paid attention and heeded his sorrow. We then looked at how his response to that sadness was to pour out his heart to God and then to interrogate himself in order to locate the source of his despair. The psalmist realizes he's experiencing deep sadness and depression because of God's silence. He feels abandoned, he feels forgotten by God, but here now in verses five through eight, we see his heart lifted out of despair. But how? He does two things. First, he remembers, and then second, he preaches to himself. He remembers. Verse four says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. And then again in verse 6, Therefore I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. He's remembering his experiences of God. He's remembering those times when he walked with God. He's remembering those times of intimacy. Kristen and I dated for about a year and a half before getting married. And during those 18 months, I don't remember ever getting into an argument or having much drama. I mean, really, like for 18 months, almost nothing. After years of marriage, job changes, raising kids, that kind of easy bliss was nothing but a vague memory. We've had our fair share of disagreements over 25 years of marriage. About four years ago, during the sabbatical that uh, the church offered us, Chris and I had the chance to go to Costa Rica for about 10 days by ourselves. We went for long walks on the beach and hikes. We explored. We sat and drank coffee while watching hummingbirds buzz around little tropical flowers. When we got back home, we had a counseling session, and our counselor asked how we experienced the trip and how we had experienced each other. We told him how good it had been and how easily we connected during that trip. He then went out of his way to tell us that the people that we had experienced on that trip were the real Brian and the real Krista. That was the real us. That was our real relationship. His invitation for us to remember reminded us of who the other truly was. Does that make sense? The psalmist is doing something similar here. It's easy to get bogged down in the busyness of our lives and to feel a million miles away from God. Some of you are changing diapers and you're staying up late with babies. Others of you are working and you're taking classes at the same time. Still others are slogging through the logistics and stress of COVID. In the midst of it all, God seems nowhere to be found. The psalmist is inviting you to remember the times from your past when you felt close to God. It's a reminder for you. 
That's the real you. That's the real God. That's your real relationship. And look what happens when the psalmist remembers. In verse 6, he breaks out into poetry. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night, his song is with me. As he remembers his times of intimacy with God, his hope awakens within him. In essence, the psalmists say, I may be physically far away from the temple up here in the north of Israel at Mount Hermon, but I know that you're with me. In the chaos and cacophony of the waterfalls and torrents of life, I can still remember your voice. Though the crashing surf and waves of life may have crushed me and held me under, I remember that you are still here. What is the psalmist doing? Possibly without realizing it, he's begun preaching to himself. More specifically, he's begun preaching to his heart or to his soul. Verse 11, why are you cast down on my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. We are complicated beings. There's a physical aspect to our humanity, and there's a spiritual aspect to our humanity. We have intellects, we have wills, we have emotions, and often those aspects of our humanity are at odds with one another. Roasted broccoli or fried pickles. You have to make a choice. Another YouTube video, or maybe reading a chapter of War and Peace. A second glance or fidelity. Self-loathing or forgiveness. Often, we have to tell ourselves the truth. This climbing rope and harness can hold over 2,600 pounds, so it will surely hold me. Only one out of 5.58 million commercial flights end with a fatal crash. It's perfectly safe for me to fly to New York or to California or to Miami. No one that I know of has ever died of public speaking. You can do it. And as German theologian Karl Barth famously answered when asked to sum up his theological teachings after a 1962 lecture in Chicago, in the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Perhaps that's the ultimate message of Psalm 42. I know that you're with me, and I know that you love me. Verse 8 says, by day the Lord commands his steadfast love. The word translated steadfast love here is hesed. You've heard that probably talked about before. But in English Bibles, hesed is translated with a variety of words, including kindness, love, loyalty, favor, devotion, and mercy. In other words, the psalmist remembers that God is devoted to him. Let me rephrase that. God is devoted to you. God is kind-hearted towards you. God is merciful towards you. God hasn't given up on you, and above all else, God is still there. The world is constantly preaching to us. CNN is preaching, MSNBC is preaching, Fox News is preaching, Facebook and Instagram are preaching, the Democrats are preaching, the Republicans are preaching, our own flesh is preaching to us. 
Usually our internal voice is one of doubt or fear or pride. Undoubtedly, Satan is preaching to us as well, accusing us of being too bad or being too much or of not being enough. I would argue that we need to counter all of those voices and we need to follow the example of the psalmist and we need to preach to our own souls. We need to tell ourselves what is true about God. We need to say, God, even when I can't feel you, I know that you are there. Father, even when I'm tempted to believe that you've abandoned me, I believe that you will never leave me nor forsake me. Even when I feel like you couldn't possibly love me, I believe in your steadfast love. We believe those true things, not just because God tells us, but we believe them because of his son Jesus who loved us and gave himself up for us. That's the message of John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God's steadfast love for you and for me is most clearly seen in his son Jesus, who came not to condemn, but to rescue you and me. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for each of the elements of this psalm this morning. Father, I thank you for an invitation that you offer to us to bring our full humanity to you. So, Father, this room this morning, if we were to to tap into the hearts and the minds of people, we would immediately see a very long list of emotions, fear and anxiety and worry and depression and sadness and a little joy and a little happiness, Father. I pray that we would bring all of those emotions before you. Father, I pray that we would bring our desires and we would just lay them all out before you, believing that in the same way a great psychologist welcomes all of those aspects of our humanity, that you are better than the best psychologist and that you are strong enough and willing to hear and to see our full hearts. Father, as we, I pray that as we bring our hearts to you, we pour ourselves out to you. Father, I pray that you would show us the source of our sadness. Father, if there's culpability in us, if we have remained far from you or far from worship, Father, reveal that to us. Father, if we are harboring a sin in our hearts, Father, please reveal that to us as well. Father, please help us to willingly give up anything that separates us from you. And Father, more than anything, I pray that we would remember the good news of your steadfast love as we have seen it in your son Jesus, Father, that you are more than capable of forgiving us for all of our most heinous sins. Father, let us believe that your son Jesus came to seek us and to save us and to rescue us and to bring us home. In Jesus' name we pray.